All right. Sorry, I've been standing the whole time. I'm having a disc issue in my lower back, and so I'm just, I've been praying the last two days that it wouldn't seize up, because when it does, it is just, it's the worst. So, man, it's good to be with you guys. I, I miss our church family at Kelty's today, but I'm thankful to be with you brothers and sisters. So, again, thank you all for having me. Um, when Wesley told me you guys were in Acts a few months ago and assigned this passage to me, I was like, sweet, this is a, this is a heavy text. This is appropriately called an awesome text when you see what the Lord does. And maybe that's confusing to you. Maybe it upsets you. Maybe you've never heard this text read. Uh, you're not familiar with it. We'll talk about all that this morning. <clears throat> the title of my sermon is Fear the Lord. The big idea, and I think this is so clear in our passage, is that holy living flows out of the fear of the Lord. Holy living, piety, right, true Christian piety flows out of our appropriate response to the Lord, which is fear, awe, and we'll define what that word means, phobos in Greek. Um, Let me just talk about some awe-inspiring moments in my own life, uh, moments where I quaked and trembled. One would be my wedding day, you know, when I saw my bride walking down the aisle. I'm, I'm a pretty sensitive guy, emotional at times. When I saw Haley coming down the aisle, I was just like, wow, thank you, God, for your goodness to me. You've given me this wonderful wife who loves you and is committed to me. And that was just a sweet day. I'll never forget it. I'm weeping and uh, praising God for his goodness. I was in awe of the beauty of my bride, but also God's grace that he'll provide such a woman for me. And then the birth of my three kids. Oh my goodness. I mean, being in that hospital room and seeing that life and being a part of that, Oh, again, dude, just weeping, like just gone uh, in awe of God's goodness to our family, providing us with these children, uh, entrusting them into our care to steward them for his glory. Uh, This spring break, I wanted to do something fun with my two boys. We have a little girl as well, Samantha. She's only 19 months old, so we can't do too much with her. But my oldest son, Clark, loves basketball. Like He is passionate about basketball. He played on a team at Hudson this year, and so I took him to a Rockets game on Friday night, and he was in awe. I mean, just the whole environment was awe-inspiring to my son. He was going nuts. He didn't know what was happening. And he loved, we didn't get to bed till like one in the morning. And he just loved every minute of it. My younger son, Luke, loves monster trucks. And this weekend at the Expo Center, they had the monster truck rally. So we went last night. And oh my goodness, man, when he sees these, so I'm tired, but the Lord carries, right? When we saw these massive trucks and the noise and the smoke, again, he was in awe. But the thing about these examples, and they're good, I think they're fine. It's fine to be excited about such things, and we should be excited when our kids are excited. But these experiences cannot sustain us, right? We we can't build our lives upon these things. When I was 12, so I, I grew up, and what I would call, oh man, at the most a nominally Christian home. My dad was not walking with the Lord at all. Um, he was doing a lot of bad things behind uh, closed doors. And he abandoned my mom when I was 11. So 12 is when I got saved, then I'll get there. But when I was 11, my dad just peaced out, ended up getting caught by the cops and spending some time in prison. Uh, my parents divorced. My mom remarried when I was 12. And it was my stepdad who sat me down and walked me through the gospel. 
And he did a good job because he started with the bad news, right? That because of my sin, I'm an object of God's wrath. I deserve his punishment. I'm separated. I can do nothing to remedy my sinful fallen state. And then he went into the good news that Jesus lived, died, and rose again to save sinners like me. And that if I trust in him, I can be forgiven. And I was enthralled. I was in awe. And I'm 12 years old, but I'm trembling at God's goodness to me. It wasn't just this fear of hell. It was that God would do that for a sinner like me. And I was truly in awe. And that awe moved me towards holiness, a desire to please and serve and follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So again, the point that I see in our passage is what grounds holiness is a right fear of the Lord. And that's what ANS, Ananias, and Sapphira did not have. And I'll refer to them as ANS throughout just because it's easier to say than Ananias and Sapphira. So ANS, who am I talking about? Who's ANS? Okay, good. Okay, we're good. Well, let me talk about context. Um, I had a professor in seminary who often said, Jesus is king, context is queen. And you never want to rip a text out of its context. You want to preach it in light of its context. And so, as I was reading and studying this week, I was like, wow, it's so important what comes before and after Acts 5, 1 to 11. So let me just take a moment to do that. There is this sweet juxtaposition between Acts 4... 32 to 37, where we see unity in the church. Acts 5, 1 to 11, which is our passage, where we see God judging sin. And then Acts 5, the text that follows, 12 to 16, we see the church being the church. We see the church gathering together. We see the church preaching the gospel. And we see the lost being converted. So on either side of this judgment text, we see the church being the church. We see the church united. We see the church on mission. So why this interruption? It almost seems strange when you're reading the text, this narrative. Also notice, let me just point this out, in Acts 5, 17 to 42, we have uh, further described opposition from the outside, right? The authorities are opposing the church. What we see in our passage today, I would say this is opposition from within, Right, Ananias and Sapphira, they were a part of the family of God. I'm not saying they were believers, but they were part of the, the visible church. Right, They were gathering with God's people. So I think the point of all this is that threats abound, both within and outside the church. And, and that's why context is important. Right, Because you see all these things going well. The church is gathering. They're, they're sitting under the teaching. Uh, the lost are being saved. But again, what else is happening? There are threats, right, within the church, but also outside the church. The picture of the church in Acts 4, 32 to 37, this picture of rich unity around the gospel cannot continue if the deception seen in Acts 5, 1 to 11 remains. Does that make sense? And I think that's what Luke is trying to convey. So context is important. Three things are emphasized here, and I have three points from our passage. What should we expect from the world and Satan, church? What should we expect? What should we expect from the church and ourselves? How should we relate to God? So this text applies to three different spheres. We have opposition from Satan. We have holiness in God's church. And again, we have awe, A-W-E, toward God. Or we could look at it like this. Um, the expectation, the call, in the response. And I'll unpack each of these. So we have the expectation, the call, and the response. Number one, the church should expect opposition. 
That's the expectation. It'd be, it'd be foolish if we didn't, right? I mean, the church should expect opposition. So what we see in Acts is that there are dangers and threats both within the church and outside the church. Recall Acts 20. Acts 20, 28 to 30. Pay careful attention. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders, right? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Oh, so good. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. So from the outside coming in, not sparing the flock and from among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So again, threats within, threats outside. What should we expect, church? Opposition, opposition. So behind, though, and this is interesting, behind the physical opposition is a very real spiritual opponent. Who is described in our passage? Who? What does Peter say to Ananias? Who's behind his deception? Satan, right? Satan. So verse three, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? So again, dangers abound for God's church, even in the most unlikeliest of places, even within the church. Therefore, the church must be on guard and the church must pursue holiness. I would argue that the mention of the Holy Spirit is significant and intentional to the context. And so, again, trying to read this the way the early church would have read it, not only do we have a very real threat, but we also have a very real helper as well. Amen? And who's our helper? The Spirit. So again, expect opposition, yes, but also expect help. So how has the Holy Spirit been described already in Acts? You guys have been saying, how long have you guys been in Acts, Blake? How many months? Since January. Okay. Okay, nice. So about three months. So I want us to look at, this is a brief survey, how the Spirit is described, not just in Acts. We're going to go further back to Luke because Luke-Acts is one work, right? Luke is part one of a two-part work. So let's go all the way back to Luke, and then we're going to kind of follow how the Spirit is described up to our text. So in Luke 4, Jesus is described as being full of the Holy Spirit. That's Luke 4, verse 1. And just three verses later, as operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Luke 4, 18 to 19, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61. I wrote a paper at Harvard. This was back in 07. I took a class with Francois Bavon. I don't know if he was a believer to this day, honestly. But this was my text. And I lived in Luke 4 for, I don't know, probably three or four months. And so I love this passage. It's not my text today, but that's just an aside. Isaiah 61, listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to do what? Look at all the verbal phrases. Proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And again, the sweet thing about that passage is Jesus. It's like a mic drop moment. This has been fulfilled in your, in your here. Like, this just happened. Like, what this points to, I'm the fulfillment. Boom. They try to kill him, and he's like, it's not time yet. <laughs> 
that's that's the kind of the nutshell version. Um, let's keep going. Let's go all the way back now to or all the way forward to Luke twenty four forty nine. So this is Jesus post resurrection. He says, "This is the promise, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with what power from on high." When we get to Acts, the promise of the Spirit is again reemphasized. This is Acts one five and then verse eight. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now, verse 8, but you'll receive what? You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the same Spirit that guided and empowered the Son of God for his holy mission will fill and empower the people of God, the church, to be God's holy people on mission. Do you see? We have the spirit. So again, what should we expect? Opposition, threats abound, both within and outside. But church, who do we have? We have the Holy Spirit, the helper, who empowers us and guides us even in the face of opposition. That is comforting and encouraging. The people of God are given the spirit of God in order to live like the son of God. The people of God are given the spirit of God to live like the son of God, to live holy. Now, there's an important theological side. This is like an excursus, if you will. When we read verse 3 and verse 4, most systematic theologies point this out uh, when talking about theology proper or, again, just the character of God, the nature of God. We believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, This is just a cool thing to point out. So, if you read these verses in parallel, so verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And then verse 4, while it remained unsold, this is Peter still talking, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so in verse 3, lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, lied to God. Which is it? Yes. Right? The Holy Spirit is God, right? The third member or person of the Trinity. And this brings to light the gravity of their sin. They have lied to who? They've lied to God. This is not necessary, but I think it's cool. We see something similar in Mark 5. See if you catch it. This is really, I love pointing this out when I teach through Mark. And he, Jesus, this is after uh, he delivers the demoniac, remember? The guy's hanging out in the tombs, cutting himself. No chains can hold him back. Uh, Jesus approaches him. He runs to Jesus. Uh, and, and again, he's, he's threatened, right? The powers of darkness are threatened. Uh, don't send us out. Send us into the pigs. I guess from those three. Okay. So again, Jesus delivers this man from the legion. This is at the end. Because after he's delivered, he just longs to be with Jesus, right? He wants to follow Jesus, be with Jesus. Which again, if you've been saved, that is the appropriate response. You want to follow Jesus, be with Jesus. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said to him, go. So he doesn't let him go with him. But go home to your friends. And here it is. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Okay, the Lord, uh, ha kurios. And how how much he has had mercy on you. Okay, the Lord. Verse 20, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. So when you read those in parallel, the Lord, Jesus. Jesus is the, the Lord. Isn't that cool? Okay. What are the church's call? So the first is the expectation. What should we expect, believers? Opposition, both inside and outside. Kind of a sub-point, who does the Lord give us to face opposition? Gives us the Spirit, okay? 
Number two, the church should be holy. And again, who does the Lord give us to be holy? The Spirit. Okay, so this is the call. The conduct of Ananias and Sapphira, A.N.S., was not holy. It was unholy. It did not reflect the character of God, but rather that of who? Satan. So the church must be about truth. We must be sanctified. Our behavior is an indicator of who we belong to. Uh, Greg Beal, he's a New Testament scholar at Westminster Theological Seminary. He wrote a really important book. There's this uh, biblical theological series that D.A. Carson has been editing for years. He wrote the book, Beal, on idols. And I think the subtitle of his work is, uh, We Become What We Worship. So you resemble what you worship, right? Does that make sense? So... I can usually, if I spend maybe an hour or two hours with a friend, I can typically tell pretty quickly who or what they worship by observing them, how they speak, how they act, what they treasure and value, right? And so again, that's the point here. Our behavior is an indicator of who we belong to. And again, what do we know of A&E's behavior? Was it holy or unholy? It was unholy. Was it of the Lord or of Satan? It was of Satan. So here's some passages, Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit, right? So if you have the Spirit, you should be marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 1 John 2, 6, right? If you say you abide in Christ, you should walk in the same manner that he walked. So again, if you say, hey, I'm of Christ, who should you look like? Christ. John 8, 44, this is Jesus speaking to the religious leaders. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so again, this is uh, an indictment from Jesus to the religious leaders. Why? Who did they look like? Satan, right? And then again, if you go back to like Mark 3, very early in Jesus' ministry, they were looking for a way after he healed the man with the withered hand, right? They were looking for a way to kill him. Anyways. So again, brothers and sisters, we must speak the truth for our Lord is truth. Next, we learn from our text that our sin against the body of Christ is first and foremost sin against who? It's sin against God. Verse four, you have not lied to man, but to God. Isn't that interesting? That correlation. John Polhill writes, to betray the community is to lie to the spirit that fills the community. And to falsify the spirit of God is an affront to God himself. And again, this brings to light the severity of our sin against the church. Christ is not only for the church, Christ fills the church with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, to sin against the church is to sin against who? To sin against the Lord. So again, church, we should be warned. We should be warned here. And I wondered as I was reading this passage this week, like what is at the heart of their sin, their deception? Like why, why did they do that? I mean, Peter's like, listen, this was your land. You sold it. This was your money. It was at your disposal. You could have done what you wanted. Why did they lie? Did they think they were smarter than God, that God wouldn't find out? I mean, get, surely not. What was going on in their hearts? What was happening? Why did they do this? I believe it was a case of pretend piety. They had pretend piety, right? The Lord knows our hearts. So let's look at how does Luke describe ANS's behavior? Verse 3, they lie to the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, they test the Spirit of the Lord. So again, what was really going on here? 
I want to focus on the verb to test, which appears in verse 9. The verb uh, perazzo in Greek, perazzo, here it denotes the idea of seeing how far one can cross the line. You know what the line is? And you're just kind of, like my kids do that sometimes, like, hey, don't go there. And they're just kind of looking at me like, maybe daddy's not watching. I'm just going to keep going. How far that they can cross the line. F.F. Bruce writes, they, referring to Ananias and Sapphira, they had been detected in a deliberately conceived plan to see how far they could go in presuming upon the forbearance of the Spirit of God, for that is what is meant by trying him, and they had gone too far. Who else is described as testing the Lord over and over in the Old Testament and were judged because of it? Israel, right? They tested the Lord over and over again. So we could say that their behavior was akin to Israel during the Exodus. And this was to be askewed. And simply put, ANS were putting on airs. They wanted the community of believers to think greatly of them for what? what what's that? For their, for their giving, right? I mean, everyone thought, hey, they gave everything. What generosity. But had they given everything? No, of course not. They'd kept back some for themselves. But they wanted the community of believers to be like, wow, what generosity. You guys are great. And I think the reason, and I think you guys would agree with this, the reason they did this, ANS, they were more in awe of man, more committed to gaining man's approval than pleasing God, right? Theirs was a false piety. But again, they could not deceive the Lord. So here's the next question, introducing our final point. How have those who are committed to true piety responded to the Lord? What grounds the church's piety? What grounds our holiness? Number three, the church should fear the Lord. That is the response. The church should fear the Lord. So let me review the points. First, we have what? The expectation. Now, here, here's how all the points kind of work together. This... Point three grounds point two, okay? What flo- our holiness comes from what? Our right response to God, right? So if we fear the Lord, if we're in awe of the Lord, what flows out of that? Holiness, piety. And I would also say that point three prepares us for point one. If we fear the Lord more than man, we're gonna be what? Ready and on guard against opposition, Okay? All right, so this fear grounds our commitment to holiness, true piety before the Lord. And the key verses in our text are verse 5 and verse 11. And what is emphasized in these two verses? This is really the meat of our passage. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, I mean, imagine being here for this, okay? This really happened. I, I remind my boys, you know, we read the Bible every night together. And I I tell them time and time again, like, this really happened. This is not story. This is not fiction. This happened in space and time. I don't use that language, but I'm saying, this really happened. This happened, guys. So, I mean, this really happened. Listen, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, a.k.a. he died. (laughs) He gone. And listen to the response of the church. In great fear, phobos megas. The adjective megas, great, large. Their fear was great. (laughs) Great fear came upon all who heard it. And then we got Sapphira. Like, she doesn't know what happened to hubby. You know, she comes in. Peter's like, hey, so what what gives? What happened? She lies, the same as her husband. 
Verse 11, and again, what happens to Sapphira? She falls down dead as well. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I see God's grace here, and I'll explain why. Because again, I think, um, I think in today's world, many would read this and be offended. Like, how could God do that? That's not fair. That's harsh. I see God's grace here. I see God preserving his church, protecting his church against sinful influence inside the church, right? Again, opposition is going to come both from outside, but also from within. So the fear of the Lord is the proper response to God's, for God's people toward God. So the proper response to God by God's people is to fear the Lord. And I'm going to take some time to really define what this means to fear the Lord. I think this is one of the most, I don't know, um, misunderstood uh, responses that we're called to have is like to fear the Lord. Because when you hear fear, what do you typically think of? Maybe copperheads, you know, right? Actual fear, right? I mean, but that's not what this word means. So the Greek word used both in verse five and verse 11 is phobos, and it denotes reverence and awe. Michael Reeves, I'm not sure if you've read anything by Michael Reeves, but he wrote a book recently called Rejoice and Trembling. So good, so helpful. It's really just kind of a theological survey of fear the Lord, looking in the Old Testament and the New, really helpful. But he defines this fear as quaking in wonder, love, and praise. Quaking, so to fear the Lord is quaking in wonder, love, and praise. He later describes the fear of the Lord as a trembling fear, a trembling fear. He writes, the trembling fear of God is a way of speaking about the intensity of the saints' love for and enjoyment of all that God is. Here's the question, though. What motivates this fear, this holy reverence and awe before the Lord? What motivates it? What gives birth to it? God's glory. God's glory. Reeves later writes that the fear of the Lord is about enjoying his fearfully lovely glory. What are the believers responding to in our passage? Again, what was the response? What was the response? What does the text say in verse 5 and verse 11? Phobos megas. They had a great fear. Great fear. So, again, what, what are they responding to? What precedes this fear, this great fear? God's glory on display. Amen? You're thinking, God's glory? Nobody was saved. Yes, but people were judged. And even in his judgment, God is glorified, right? So his glory, and if you think about just the scriptures, like historically, redemptively, God's glory is on display in contexts where he saves sinners and or when he judges sinners. In both of those contexts, and I'm thinking specifically because I'm about to start teaching through Exodus, God's glory is on display when he judges and when he saves. That language, his glory, is oftentimes associated in those two contexts. God, you could also say when he creates. When he creates as well, ah, oh, that wow moment. But specifically, when he judges sinners or when he saves sinners, what's on display? God's glory. And what is the proper response to God's glory? What is it? Fear, trembling, awe, reverence, worship, worship. When the Lord, again, saves and judges sinners, he is acting on behalf of his holy character. So when God acts this way, his character is on display. And when God reveals his character, how should we respond? Awe, 
wonder. Wow. Again, his glory revealed in the context of divine judgment leads to awe and wonder. And our passage is one of judgment, one of judgment. So let's further assess the issue at the heart of ANS's sin. So I would argue that ANS had an awe, A-W-E problem. They were irreverent toward the Lord. They lied to the Lord, right? Both of them did. If you fear the Lord, do you lie to the Lord? Say it in Spanish. No. It works both ways. Yeah, you like that. I like that too, man. No, of course not. They didn't fear the Lord. They had not responded appropriately, and they were not responding appropriately to the gospel, right? Because at the gospel, at the cross, we see God's judgment and his faithfulness, his salvation coming together. And what is the proper response to the gospel? Fear, awe, reverence. Wow. So ANS suffered from misplaced awe. They were more committed to horizontal awe than vertical awe. They were more enthralled with their reputation and their wealth, and thus, they're standing before the church than the Lord. Um, Haley and I, my wife, we've been using this word janky. Is that? You guys know janky? Like, I have a janky truck. I love my truck. I'm thankful for it. It's janky. I mean, every couple of months, something happens. It's not always working the way it should. And so we've, the kind of the running joke is, man, I got a janky truck, right? They had a janky awe. It, it was misplaced. It was a misplaced awe. And it led to a janky fear, right? It wasn't the proper fear. It was an inauthentic and disingenuous fear. One aimed at man and not God. Because again, and I think you got it, brother, it appears that they gave everything. And how should the, I mean, the church is like, wow, what general, but had they? They'd not given everything. But by apparently giving everything, what was the response from the church? Wow, what generosity. Oh, that feels good. You know, I mean, wow. But again, it, it was a lie. It was deceptive. Paul Tripp, and he's written a, a wonderful little yellow book called Awe, A-W-E. In his book, Awe, he writes this. I thought this was so helpful. When we replace vertical awe of God with awe of self, with horizontal awe. You guys understand the difference, right? Vertical awe versus horizontal. More concerned with the fear of man than God. When we do that, bad things happen in the horizontal community. Case in point, Ananias and Sapphira, right? So, and I mentioned this earlier when I referenced uh, Greg Beal, his book, uh, We Resemble What We Worship. It's a great book, by the way. What we revere typically has our heart. Would you agree with that? What we revere typically has our heart. So who or what are you in awe of today? Who or what has your heart? What produ- maybe you're wondering, what produces this true God-honoring awe and reverence before the Lord? The answer is found in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. So again, here's the question. What produces this proper fear of the Lord? What did ANS not have? a proper fear of the Lord, right? And it was seen in their lack of what? Holiness, their lack of piety. Because again, what flows out of our fear of the Lord? Holiness, piety. But they didn't have that. So they didn't have a proper fear of the Lord. And the church must be what? The church must be holy. And what precedes our holiness? Our awe, our fear of the Lord. But here's the answer. What produces this proper fear of the Lord? It's my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of who? Jesus Christ. You guys are familiar with this text, right? When we are graciously regenerated to behold the Son of God in the gospel word of God by the Spirit of God, it leads to a true fear of God. Does that make sense? When we are graciously made, so we're regenerated, we were dead, made alive to behold the glory of God in Christ, the Son of God, what is the response? Fear of God. But for that to happen, what must we proclaim? The gospel. Because the Spirit of God works through the gospel of God to bring about this proper fear of God. So how are we to make sense of the events that unfold in Acts 5? And I told you I would come back to this. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I see God's grace on display. I mean, God's grace? How? They get smoked. I mean, can you imagine? It's like dead, dead. Like within a matter of minutes, two people died in the church. How is that God's grace? This is a difficult text, to be sure. Okay, It is a difficult text. But it's right for us to see the Lord's discipline and holy judgment as a demonstration of his grace and mercy. He is protecting and preserving his people. Is true? Do you see that? He is protecting them from the ongoing sinful influence of ANS. Again, Ananias and Sapphira. And this is similar to church discipline. Why do we do church discipline? It's a purging work. Now, again, the goal is always restoration. But when it's done initially, if we get to point three or level three in Matthew 18, it's, it's a purging work. It's to protect the church against their influence. Does that make sense? The glory of Christ is the key here. And I said the glory of Christ is the key to everything. God's divine judgment against ANS led to what? Anger in the church? No. Doubting in the church? No. What does the text say in verse 5 and verse 11? Great what? Great fear. Great fear. It led to God being glorified. This is worship language. Again, if you read Proverbs, if you read the Psalms, the fear of the Lord is often tantamount to this, to worship. They're fearing the Lord. They're in awe of the Lord. That is their response to God's judgment on display. Excuse me. So again, what we see here, God is protecting his body, but he's also what? Producing worship through this event. This is cool, and I thought I would point this out. Uh, I love the Old Testament. Again, that's kind of our, you know, we preach old, new, old, new. I'm sure you guys do the same thing. Um, numerous scholars see a parallel between this account, Acts 5, 1 to 11, and Joshua 7, 1 to 26. And what happens in Joshua 7? The sin of Achan. Remember Achan? And the same Greek word is used in Acts 5.2 to keep back. Now I'm talking about the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, right? So if you look at the Greek text of Joshua 7, what did Achan do? He, he kept it back. That's mine. Nobody going to know about it, right? And, and again, what did Ananias do? He, he kept back the proceeds. It was his. I've given everything, but he, in actuality, what did he do? He kept back some, Okay. So here's the question. Why would Luke, and I think he's being intentional here, why would he draw a parallel between that passage and this passage? Both passages occur in the context of conquest. Okay, so Israel was tasked with taking the promised land. Okay, so Joshua is part of the conquest narratives. 
And the church was tasked with the Great Commission, taking the gospel to the ends of the nations. Does that make sense? So again, both contexts, one of conquest. But here's the question. What will impede this mission? Sin in the sin. Sin in the community of God's people will impede the mission. There's no place for sin amongst God's people. It's true. Sin will be exposed. Sin must be repented of. Because again, God's mission cannot go forward if there is sin in the community. Therefore, sin must be either repented of or dealt with. For the mission to go forward, sin must be dealt with. And it was in a very awesome way. And it led to what? Awe. And I guarantee you, those in the church thought twice about doing the same thing that ANS did. So again, the point is, sin has no place in the community of God's commissioned people. For the mission to go forward, we must be holy. Holiness flows out of what? Awe and wonder, right? And where does that come from? Well, awe and wonder comes from... That's right, in the gospel, right? We're made to see the glory of God in the gospel of God. Oh, fear and wonder. And that produces holiness. And that prepares us for opposition, right? Good, good, good. Here's some theological takeaways. Um, what does our passage teach us about God? Anytime you're studying a text, I always ask these questions. What does this passage teach us about God, about man, and about the gospel? And I'm going to take these one at a time. What does our passage teach us about God? He's holy. Would you agree? He's not to be trifled with. He's just. He's wrathful. He's to be feared. But he's also merciful. He's merciful. His judgment was his merciful means of preventing further deception in the church. His wrath, his judgment was his merciful means of precluding or preventing further deception in the church. And again, what we see about God in our text is his will is for his church to be holy. Amen? His will is for his church to be holy. What does our passage teach us about man? Well, the obvious answer is man is what? Man is sinful. <laughs> man is sinful. The heart of man is sinful. We have, a, like ANS, we have a natural tendency to fear man and seek man's favor rather than to fear God and seek his favor. I mean, who's experienced that in their own life? We have a natural tendency to fear man, to be more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks. What did Paul say in Galatians 1? Am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Lastly, what does our passage teach us about the gospel? The gospel is the only remedy to mankind's sin problem. The gospel is meant to lead God's people to holiness as they are made to behold the glory of God at the cross where God's judgment and his salvation come together. And remember, we who trust in Christ have the Holy Spirit for the purpose of what? Holy living. A proper response to the gospel of God is a trembling fear of God. Does that make sense? An awe and a reverence. And this fear is seen in a church composed of brothers and sisters in Christ, living holy and set apart, practicing church discipline, and worshiping the Lord together in spirit and truth. Growing in this proper vertical awe is the key to growing in holiness, and thus being on guard against opposition, both within the church and outside the church. Reeves writes, it's a great quote, Michael Reeves writes, 
contemplating the splendor of God and so stoking our fearful wonder at him is at the heart of Christian health. So here's the question I want to end on. How do we grow in our awe and wonder of the Lord? How do we grow in our awe and wonder of the Lord? The word, the word. Because in the word we have revealed who? the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we gather every Lord's Day with the church to sing the word, to pray the word, to hear the word, and as throughout the week in our homes, either in our private devotion or with fellow brothers and sisters, we come under the word and we behold the Son of God and the word of God, what happens? What's the result? It's an increased white awe and reverence of who God is because of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, if you want to grow in your awe and wonder, what is the key? Be in the word. Be in the word on your own. Be in the word with God's church. And again, the result, increased awe and wonder, which shows itself in an increasing commitment to holiness, becoming more and more like the Son of God for the glory of God and the good of God's people. Our passage today, like all of scripture, and I'm sure you agree with me on this, calls us to examine our own hearts, right? And maybe you've done some of that introspection already. Here's some questions that I ask when I read this passage. Is my piety true and genuine, right? Am, Am I putting on airs? Do I want people to perceive me a certain way because it makes me feel good? Or do I truly care about being holy for the sake of my glorious Savior who's worthy? So again, is our piety true and genuine? Next, are we more concerned with pleasing the Lord than man? Oh, there's a great book by Tim Keller. It's The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. It's like 50 pages. But man, I had a brother. Uh, He led music for us in Washington. He struggled with this, wanting to please man. And the Lord used that book. It's a little book. I think it's called The Art of Self-Forgetfulness. Really helpful. But again, that's the question. Are we more concerned with pleasing the Lord than man? And then lastly, do we truly fear the Lord? Do we truly fear the Lord? What is the evidence that we truly fear the Lord? What flows out of our fear of the Lord? Holiness, holiness, holiness. Well, again, all this starts with the gospel. All this starts with beholding the glorious Savior and the gospel of God. And what is the gospel? I ask my boys this all the time. What is the gospel, Clark? What is the gospel? I want them to know it, right? That, that is my joy. That is my goal that my kids know the gospel. I can't save them, but I can give them the message. I can point them to the Savior. And I pray for the Spirit to regenerate them every day. So my boys know the gospel. I'm sure you know the gospel. But here's the thing. When we talk about the gospel, it shouldn't be like, oh, come on, we know this. No, it should be like, yes, this is everything, amen? So what is the gospel? Simply put, Christ lived the life we could not live. We owe a debt, all of us. And what is the debt we owe? A perfect life. Have any of us paid that debt? No, we've all fallen short. We've all failed. But one has, and who's that? Who lived the perfect life that we could not live because of our sin? Christ. So he paid the debt, but guess what else? Because we've not paid the debt, What do we deserve? What does God owe us? Death, punishment. Well, not only did Christ live the life we could not live, paying our debt, but he died the death we deserve. He took the wrath of God in our place at the cross. Amen? And then he rose again, and and again, the resurrection. The resurrection's everything. Again, read 1 Corinthians 15. If, If 
Christ was not raised, we're to be pitied more than all men. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But because Christ was raised, it means that everything he did worked, and all his claims are true. And when you and me, by the Spirit of God and the grace of God, are made to behold the glory of God and the gospel of God, it transforms us, amen? And it leads to what? A life of holiness, a life of set-apartness with God's people for the glory of God and the spread of his fame. So if you don't know the gospel, I plead, I beg, I entreat you like Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, follow him with the church. Let's be holy together, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings of scripture. We thank you, God, for your character on display in your word, your awesome character. In our text, Father, we see that yes, you're merciful, yes, you're gracious, but you're also wrathful, you're just, you're holy, you're not to be trifled with. I pray for RBC and I pray for Kelties that these local bodies would be committed to living, holy, righteous, God-honoring lives for your glory and the spread of the gospel. I pray that we would grow in our fear of you, Lord, in our trembling awe of who you are as we regularly come under your word with your people to behold the beautiful Savior. Jesus, we thank you that you're a king, that you live the life we cannot live, you died the death we deserved, and you rose again, proving that your saving work worked, and that all your claims are true, that you truly are king, you truly are Lord, you truly are God. We thank you for this time, and we pray if anything that I said was not in line with the intended spirit-inspired meaning of this text, that it would fall on deaf ears. But Father, what was truth, what was heard, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and that it would result in change, deep-seated change, eternal change, a greater love for Christ, a greater love for your church, a greater love for your word, and a greater commitment to the Great Commission. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.